Hey team, it's Steven here, founder of Inbound, and with me co-hosting is Avi Shemkin, founder of Enduser. And today we interviewed Jake Knapp on oh our podcast. Oh my god! <laughs> exactly on our podcast, straight up. So for those of you that haven't heard of Jake Knapp, he invented the design sprint. He worked at Google Ventures. He helped launch or helped scale 200 plus startups over there. He worked at Microsoft. He wrote a book called Design Sprint. He wrote another book called Make Time. In this podcast, we talk about similarities and differences between New Zealand and Silicon Valley. We talked about the importance of building a personal brand. We talked about how to reach out to people in a way that is best for everyone. And we also talked about how fun was probably the best thing that you can do. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast with a Jake Knapp. Oh, wonderful. So happy to have you here. We're actually super excited. Oh, oh thanks. <laughs> we just did a few Instagram stories and we're just I like, know, we're <laughs> like, oh, we're shaking cameras and stuff. <laughs> Um, cool. So um, we'll kick off with the first question that we have just uh, to get, you know, if somebody doesn't know you, they can just literally leave the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that most people probably wouldn't know me. So feel free. If you're leaving the podcast, come back, you know, uh, don't, don't, don't be. Exactly. Come back <laughs> yeah. later after you've done some research and then be impressed yeah. with us <laughs> for bringing you. <laughs> um, all right. So um, welcome, Jake. Welcome to our Kiwi podcast. Um, can you please walk us through your journey or timeline leading up to the birth of the Design Sprint? So just so that we get to know a bit more about you uh, and your personal life. Sure, journey, yeah. Uh, as well as your career. Yeah, I, uh, because I really answer questions with far too many words and far too much backstory, um, but... I like to start when I was a kid because I, I was really into programming um, computers and making computer games. And in high school, I was on the school newspaper, which was like a lot of graphic design. And it's sort of like product design because you're thinking about your customer. You know, I mean, I didn't think about it like this at the time, but and I was making web pages. And this sort of carried through, even though I studied visual art, like uh, painting in college, um, I didn't. The idea of, of product design as an actual career wasn't on my radar at all. It's just something I liked doing as it turned out. And I happened to stumble upon a job one summer working at uh, Oakley, the sunglasses company, um, on their website and making animated GIFs. And that's sort of the beginning of doing design work and product design that led me to Microsoft and then to Google. But all this whole time, I was kind of an outsider looking in at these teams. As I was there, I was like, I, you know, I wasn't a person who'd studied engineering or project management or any of the things that my colleagues had done, not even graphic design. And so I kind of felt like I had to be almost, you know, like a like a journalist or an anthropologist figuring out how to do my job. And um, and eventually I think that that while that was a stumbling block for me in the beginning, it eventually helped me because I, I think I was just used to noticing when things were weird and being used to being sort of questioning like what's going on. And I, I, I just began to notice how we were working. And, and, um, and by the time I had been doing this work of product design for uh, eight, nine, 10 years and had gone on to Google, I was really starting to feel like there were these moments when I had 
been working with a team and maybe we'd spent a week and we had really focused and built, you know, had to build something under a, a deadline that were really great. But other than that, when I was on a team and we were starting a project, it just felt like nobody had any idea of what we were doing. And so at this point, I was, I was very interested in getting things done and personal productivity. I was very interested in how you sort of start a project in the best way. I was very inspired by the writing of uh, Jason Freed and DHH from, uh, at that time it was 37 Signals, now Basecamp. I was very inspired by David Allen. I was very inspired by Atul Gawande who'd written, a, this is before the checklist manifesto, but he talked about checklists. And this is sort of this idea of like systematically approaching the way we worked got me really sort of excited. And I started to think like, maybe there's a better way. And so in 2010, I, I had I'd also been really inspired by design thinking workshops that I had been in and had run for a couple of years, but I just felt like things weren't quite clicking. So all of those things were inspiration points for me to try the first design sprint. That's so cool. And you touched on it quite a bit where to be a great designer, you need to be human centered, right? You need to be empathetic. You need to be, I guess, curious about people because that's the end user you're designing for. So was there like particular moments that you you realized that this is something you wanted to pursue, that you realized actually, you know, it's, it's this curiosity that I'm really passionate about more than anything else? I have to be honest with you. I don't think there was ever a moment like that. And I, I think actually that empathy is too much to ask for <laughs> in, in product design. I mean, I think I know why people say it because they're, they're a couple ways to define the, the word, I guess, and the way that people mean it when they're talking about uh, building products is they mean that you should understand what your customer is going through and you should be able to see things a bit from their perspective and not only from your own perspective. And that is totally true. But I think that the when the word makes me nervous is that it empathy when we're talking about it outside of design and product, we mean like, <laughs> I feel your pain, you know, and Mm. It's a yeah, lot yeah. to ask. And I'm not a person who's especially empathetic. You know, I, I like, um, I'm surrounded by other people in my family who have, are more empathetic than me. I can see the difference. And, you know, I'll be with my wife or my older son or something, we'll be around somebody and they just have a better sense of what other people are going through. But yesterday, we're dry, we're in the go to the grocery store and we're in the parking lot and um, we're, you know, it's super crowded and um, my wife is driving and she waits to get a parking spot. And this, the, after like we've been waiting for, I don't know, 60 seconds or something, the car behind like drives around and the woman flips off my wife as she drives around, gives her the bird. And I don't know what she, what do you call that in New Zealand? The, the finger. Flip the bird. Yeah. Okay. The finger. So anyway, okay. So we're like, that was weird. You know, I mean, we're kind of, we're like, yeah, you know, we're like all upset, but I'm just like, that's a horrible person. That's just my read. You know, that's a horrible person. We go inside the grocery store and my, my wife sees the woman and she, she was going into the grocery store too. And she goes up to her and she's like, Hey, are you okay? Cause you know, and I'm like, I'm just like, dying, you know? And, she, and she's, I'm like, like, I, you know, I'm not even like, I can't even imagine this. And she's like, you know, cause I, you must, you've been really upset. I'm, you know, I just want to make, check in with you and make sure things were okay. And I mean, the woman, and the woman too is like, oh my God. But okay. So that's empathy. Like that's true empathy. That is not, that is just like way more than you should ask for somebody building products. So I just think 
that for for me honestly i was always much more motivated by making cool stuff i just want to be honest like that's not good that's not the maybe the way things should be but i just always liked making cool stuff i wanted to make games or i wanted to make like something that was that was cool that i wanted to impress people you know with the things that i built just being honest and i i think i came around to the fact that you can't really make something cool unless people get it like it's not cool if people can't understand it and use it and they don't want it that's not a cool thing. You shouldn't, you can't really feel too good about it. So in a very selfish way, yeah, I can get the point that I need to figure out um, other people's perspective, but it's not truly like heartfelt empathy, honestly. It's always a bit Machiavellian. Like, how do I get what I want? How do I, how do I make you do the thing I hope you'll do? And I mean, I'm being a bit exaggerating it, but there, there's an element of that. <laughs> but that's great because it's probably something that come it's more common with people they actually people want to be proud of their work yeah. and uh, they want to yeah. do cool stuff i mean that's how we are as you humans. want people to think it's cool totally um, and you want you know you want exactly. and you might have a vision for how much it can do for people like that's cool too right like i know that like i find this thing so annoying and i want to make it better so i and i have this idea for a product but and I do think that a lot of people actually, they do have empathy for humans and they do, you know, care about how people, but they can put themselves in people's shoes and that's where the drive comes from. I just think for a lot of people, they're more like me, they're more selfish and they don't, it's sort of a means to an end and it's okay. Honestly, mm. it's okay. Like you still have to do the same stuff, right? You just don't need to go to the person in the yeah, supermarket. Right, yeah. You don't, <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, oh that's God, for me, amazing. a bridge too far, but it's great, it's great, I mean. <laughs> I'll stop doing that. I'll stop flipping people. I'm sure that 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 person will think twice before flipping off the next um, person in a a parking lot because it got very uncomfortable for her. But the um, I do think that that's a big part of what has been successful about the design sprint for people is that it does not expect you to take on the the whole philosophy of design up front. It's very much like what are you trying to accomplish? Here's a Here's a fast way, an effective way to get started. There's a lot of r- rationale people can relate to in it. And oh, by the way, at the end, we do test with customers and you do end up better understanding the people you're working for. And I think being more connected to them, but it happens in a way where you can be motivated by trying to make something cool and trying to accomplish the thing you already have in mind in the beginning and you'll get there. And I think enough people start from that, that other place and not the place of empathy that it's helpful to have a tool that doesn't require you to be totally bought in on design and empathy up front. But as long as you do care about, um, you know, your users and the experience they go through, and if it's cool at the end, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, and it's, it's sort of, it's actually, I think, a matter of, and I, I'll, I'll stop rat-holing on the word empathy and like very, very quickly, but, the, but um, it's kind of a matter actually of as a, as a designer or researcher, whatever, of having empathy for your colleagues and the fact that they might not care about the same things you do in the same way, or, or they might not, you know, they might not put it in the same words or, or that, you know, that they might still be really good people who have good motivations and, um, and, but they don't necessarily, and I think a lot of the frustration I felt as a designer earlier in my career and, I, and, and when I see designers who are frustrated with the people they work with, I think a lot of times it comes from feeling like they're not doing it right and they're not listening to me and, and I, I'm doing it the right way. I'm doing it sort of the righteous way, like the just way. This is the, you know, we sh- and, and that's a frustrating place to be in, you know. 
and it's um it's like the you become the person flipping the bird in the grocery store parking lot and like you don't need to be that person you know you can just you know, you can just say, hey, like, here's, if you unpack, and that's a, another problem with design often is that we, we've we been taught or we've just learned to do things. Like I was put in a situation early in my career where because I knew how to use, at that time, Photoshop, because I knew how to design things and make them look good. And let's be honest, a big part of design is making things look pretty. I was then given more responsibility than I really maybe ought to have had to design the product. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but because I was given the responsibility, I was like, okay, I'm the expert on this, but I, there was nothing behind that, you know? And so a lot of it is also designers having to say, uh, I might not actually guaranteed have the right solution here. Let's all work on it together and let's sort of experiment together. And that also takes some empathy to like think about your colleagues and, and how they look at the problem too. But anyway, enough empathy, mm -hmm. we should move on. You yeah. guys have more questions, more interesting <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah, cool. So you touched on all before you're you're passionate for the you know, design principles, going through and learning all that kind of stuff. What was your process to create the design sprint itself? It was just, um, it was. It's funny because I've told the the story of sort of the evolution of the design sprint many times, and and it's now you know when you tell a story, you actually alter like your memory of what the thing is. So I, in my mind, it's this very rational progression of things, but I know that it wasn't. Like I know that in the beginning it was sort of, and in fact I, it's almost ten years since the first design sprint, and I just moved back to Seattle. It was in Seattle uh, back then because I lived here at that time, and it was. And I looked up on, you know, you can go through your photos, your digital photos nowadays and like try to find a date. So I dug through Dropbox and I found the photos from that week. And I was like, wow, I was looking at it and I was like, wow, this is, it's so different from what I would consider a design sprint today. It was, a, it started off with a group brainstorm workshop. So day one was like 30, 40 people in a room at different tables doing group brainstorms, developers and designers and product managers working together. And, um, and then they, they sort of each came up with solutions and they kind of narrowed down to like some different ideas that were interesting. And then the next four days, we had a product manager and like four or five designers who I had recruited from different teams. We were working on Gmail um, contacts in Gmail. And we spent four days like building a prototype. Each person coming up with their own design solution and like making not really a prototype per se, but more like a click through of how it would work. And, um, and so the first idea that I called a design sprint was it's not just a workshop, it's like a workshop and a design hackathon. And that's almost the best way to think of the beginning point of it. And, and we have, and we'll use this constrained period of time to attract, to get people together to work on a problem that's important, but you know, we can sort of shine a laser on it and we'll have a deadline at the end where we'll like sort of pitch these different solutions and that's that's the first design sprint so from there to today where you've got something that's um that's really a, a checklist and it's like a different focal point each day so we're like map sketch decide prototype test and the test at the end that didn't come until two years after the first sprint or so when i went to google ventures and i started working with Michael Margolis and with the other folks there. And we, and Michael was like, we could actually do a test in one week. Like I can get people in that fast and put it together, which never would have even occurred to me. Um, and and it was something that was really valuable for startups. So we were really trying to, uh, you know, doing it at Google Ventures. It was like, after doing it a bunch at Google where my whole goal was to get a prototype in a week and to really help the team get aligned 
and get started in a week. That was sort of the initial push. And to also get design attention on something because the Google design team was very small at that time. Then at Google Ventures, it was like, how do we make this really useful for, for startups? And actually that five-day process that, that's still sort of what was in the book, that came together really quickly at GV where like I started there in 2012, early 2012. And by that fall, I was already writing the blog posts that basically lay out the structure the way it's in the book. But then between then and when the book was written, which is like 2014, 2015, and it came out in 2016, there was a lot of reps, just like 25, 30, 35 design sprints a year. And each time kind of just kind of like saying like, wow, what didn't work, you know, seeing where things, where there were problems and experimenting with different structures and just throwing things out that didn't, weren't like the most effective way to, to make progress and headway and trying to really redesign some of the group dynamics, uh, some of the, the weird defaults about the way people will talk to each other and interact. And then now I'm almost done with the monologue. Now you get people, you get it out in the real world, and and people are using it. And then I think they're they're finding some improvements and hacks. And a lot of those I think are are really smart. And some people, you know, it's natural because the word is pretty vague. Design sprint. I mean, that name just stuck. That's what I called it in the, for the first one, and it stuck. Um, for better, for worse. But some people will call things a design sprint that I wouldn't really call a design sprint. But other than that, there are some really smart tweaks and, and hacks out there so yeah that's the story that's the long the long story very cool but um can you elaborate a little bit about so you started some sort of process um like you say at google and then you moved um to yeah. gv um did you go to uh, michael margulis or the people at gv and said look i have this thing that i'm testing out how can we make it work oh like, how, how did that did, happen how did that process in gv like wh first of all how do you, did you go about to them and how did they decide to adopt it for all the startups? That yeah, well, it came about because I knew Michael really well and also Braden, who, so Braden was the first design partner. He was the first design partner at any venture fund. This is Braden Coetz. So there was, that was not even a job before he went there. Google Ventures started in, I want to say like 2009 or around there. Um, so by the time I joined, it was, I mean, it was still very new. And um, they were really trying to build credibility with startups because if you if you want to be the one thing that's interesting about Google Ventures is that they were most uh, venture funds at a big company are in it for strategic reasons. They want to invest in companies to encourage them to use their technology or because they plan to try to buy those companies later at a discount. But the idea with Google Ventures was that they would they they want they, they you know if there was going to be another Google that came along, or you can think of it as like almost like another Facebook that came along. They wanted to at least have like a piece of the success, you know, to have invested in them. They also it's were all about the founders. Cool things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, if somebody was going to beat them at something. Like they should at least profit off of it a little bit. That's a very like you know, that's one way to look at it. And another way is that they, for what they would say, is that venture capital was important to Google when it got started and they wanted to sort of help the startup ecosystem. They wanted to basically help more interesting technologies and there were more possibilities for interesting technology than what Google on its own would ever do. So that was sort of the, the mission for, for Google Ventures then was 
we'll measure success by if we make money because we'll only make money if we're investing in really interesting technology and the best things and and we have to not mess with them we have to not we have to you know be able to assure them that we're not that Google proper is separate and is not going to be spying on them or know anything about what goes on we're we're a separate entity and then we have to prove like well there's a lot of there's a lot of VCs who could write a check so what makes us special we're brand new Google and Silicon Valley is a reputation for getting excited about something and then dropping it or for being a company that you don't necessarily want in your business. And so they also, they have like, whereas Google in many parts of the world, at least at that time, had a very good reputation. Uh, it was a, maybe a bit of a liability in Silicon Valley. So what we were trying to do was with design or what they were trying, I should say they, because this is before me, Part of the idea was like, hey, this could be a competitive advantage. Like they saw design as being an emerging important thing. And uh, Braden was good friends with one of the general partners there. And Braden had been the lead designer on Gmail. He was looking for the next thing to do, was interested in startups. So he goes over there to be a design partner. And pretty soon he recruits Michael Margolis, who had been um, and I had worked on Gmail too. So Michael had been our colleague there. Michael was actually my boss in Seattle. And so I knew Michael super well, he's a good friend of mine. And Michael went there too. And then, so we knew each other well. And I had, at that time, I run the first design sprint. It went really well. I start doing this, it becomes my full-time job. So I sort of weaseled my way into making this my full-time job at Google. But I don't really know what I'm doing because I mean, I don't really know what I'm doing as a product designer in the first place, but now I've been doing that for a while, but I have never worked as a consultant. Uh, you know, I've never like, I've just been a person building products on teams, so I don't really know what I'm doing. And I think Braden and Michael felt a bit that way too. Like they've been building products for a long time from the inside. Now they're coaching startups. So we just started to meet on a regular basis because what we were doing was similar. I was coaching teams inside Google and trying to find this way to like come and work together with them and help boost what they were doing. And Braden and Michael were doing the same thing. They were trying to find these small ways to work with companies and, and help them to work better. And they were experimenting a bunch. So we would just exchange notes and kind of act as sounding boards for each other for quite a while. We were doing this maybe, I don't know, months or maybe a year. Um, and eventually we decided that it would be cool to try doing a sprint together. You know, I kept telling them about design sprints and they were like, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. Like, let's try one together. And so, yeah, in January of 2012, we did one together and it was it was just really fun. Like, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I know they enjoyed John Zaratsky had just joined their team. Jay-Z. Uh, Jay-Z. And so we, yeah, so we were like, let's, you know, wow, let's, why don't you come over here and, I was a bit torn because I wasn't into startups. And at that time I was like, I finally have the coolest job I could imagine at Google. I get to work with any team. I get to work at the beginning of a cool project. And to me, the scale of what Google was doing was just so much more interesting than these startups, a lot of whom I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of Google Ventures before that. So um, it was kind of a tough decision, but I did it mostly because that team was so fun to work with. That was a big thing. And then I also felt like, well, there's no better place. I started to have a lot of like optimism about the design sprint. And I thought this is such a great environment. Like I can try it with all these different companies doing all different kinds of things. And that's really gonna teach me a bunch. And so I didn't, so to answer your question, finally, I didn't really have to, um, I didn't really have to convince them or sell them on it. It was more, I guess it sort of emerged out of us talking together. A lot of people say that, 
venture capital is especially a lot of things in Silicon Valley, but venture capital, especially is an old boys club. That's a lot about who, you know, and, um, and in my case, it was totally true. Mm. I mean, that's how I got to be in the room with them talking to them because I already knew them from working with them on Gmail. And it's an interesting thing how that sort of perpetuates itself. The people who you hire, the people you're familiar with and comfortable with. And the bur like the bar, the burden for me to sell people on it, it was really pretty easy because I had sold the people they trusted who were Braden and Michael and, um, and you know, John had just joined, but they were already sold. So the rest of the team was like, well, if, you know, we trust these guys and they trust you, then by extension, we trust you. So that's kind of how it happened. But then over time I did have to sell it because that was all I did at Google Ventures was run sprints. And I couldn't do some of the things the other people there could do. I didn't know anything about startups or investing. So I started to give a presentation like every week pretty much at our all team meeting, uh, talking about the sprints we were doing, telling the stories of them, talking about what the business impact was. And that practice of telling the story over and over again really helped me when I started to blog about it, write about it and give talks and try to teach it outside of, of GV. So, yeah. That's so cool. So now we're gonna start doing some New Zealand related questions. So New Zealand's okay. population is just over 4 million, kind of similar to Silicon Valley. I believe there's about 4 million people in the, in the general region around there. Okay. Um, take that into consideration. Would you push New Zealand companies and startups to do design sprints to foster growth? What's your experience with like similar sized companies through GV? And I guess the most important part of this question is, What's the most critical factor of the design sprints that you think um, helps make companies successful? Well, I think it would be naive of me to try to guess or advise New Zealand as a whole, because I don't know, I don't really know anything about New Zealand, except it's such a great accent, you know, and the, <laughs> the photos of New Zealand. I really want to visit someday so bad. The I, photos I never look believe so great. people say we've got a great accent. If people yeah. say it, I'm like, no, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's great. I don't know. Maybe it depends on your, the context. Because mm. you all, for one thing, I don't know. Can you hear it? Can you hear the accent? Well, I'm not from it. here, so I can hear it. It you took me a while it. to, <laughs> to understand yeah. exactly. To understand word. it, yeah. Can you hear it? No, yeah. I, I just feel Stupid. like I, oh, I, I feel like I mumble sometimes, and that's like yeah, as far okay. as my accent goes. Yeah. But now I can, outside, I can hear the American least. accent, because before the American accent was the regular accent type. Yeah. I, you know, but now mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, he's so American. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I'm sure the American accent, because, you know, I can't hear the American accent. I'm sure it's, I don't know what, it probably sounds really unsophisticated. That's my guess. <laughs> but the New Zealand accent, I don't know. It's just so charming, but it might be the bias of just where I hear, mm. you know, people speaking with that accent. I mean, it's like, it's folks like you, you guys are very nice, very charming. There's, uh, you know, uh, Flight of the Concords. Yeah. There's not a lot. That's it's true. not like I'm bombarded with New Zealand accents all the time. It's just occasionally. So I'm not like, you know, running into jerks on the street. I don't know what it's like there. You guys might say, oh, flipping there's all kinds birds. of people in New Zealand. Yeah. In yeah. <laughs> flipping birds all over the place. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Advise, yeah. I think that it's, first of all, to, to answer one part of the question, the easy part. The easy part is, what's the aspect of the design sprint that's particularly helpful in a place like New Zealand. And I think it's the same thing that's helpful anywhere, which is that when you are trying to figure out what to do, well, you have a plan or you have an idea and you, you need to get started and you need to know if you're on the right track, it's always 
expensive to fail. Even if there's not a lot of money on the line, even in those situations when there's not a lot of money on the line, there's a lot of there's always a lot of time on the line if you're going to build something. And you said people, you know, tend to be pretty relaxed. So maybe it's even more time in New Zealand before things get done. I don't know. But the the other part, though, is that there's it like people really talk about how failing is so great. And I'd say failing sucks. It's like the most painful, awful thing. And you like look back and you're, you know, and if you I don't know, it's just it's, it's not good. It's to be avoided at all costs. And so I think that the design sprint is a way to help with some of that stuff, to alleviate some of those those challenges. Um, some of the pushback um, we, I mean, I heard about the design sprint here was there's no way you can get that much done in four days. We need more time. Um, and my response to that, well, if it's such a short amount of time, let's just try it. And, and yeah, see, yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think there's, it is. I mean, I think the argument that I, I try to make to folks when they haven't been in a, design, in a design sprint before, because when people have been in it, it's, it's so much different. You get it, you know? And um, uh, and I was, I, God, I would be skeptical if somebody came up to me and described their process, their week-long process. I think people are right to be skeptical of things that are going to take that much time. I, I think that the the reason why so much can be accomplished in such a short period of time is partly because you can offload the the part of a meeting or the part of collaboration where you're wondering what to do next. It's actually very freeing to just say, we'll follow the checklist so that we can use our brain for the hard part, which is solving the problem. Like the checklist really just takes care of the easy part, which is what should the schedule be? But that's a big deal. That actually frees up, you know, like a good, I don't know, tw I think 25 or 30% of brain power. I just am making that up, but like, and then there's another part of like brain power boost that you get because you're working just on one thing for the whole time and you're not switching contexts and you're working with the same people and there's stuff on the wall. So you get like where our short-term memory is a bottleneck in so much of what we do. And in the design sprint, it's it's like we're never we're never like breaking that bottleneck. Like we're always on the same topic. We're always if we don't have if we have too much information to manage, we have the walls to help us. Like we have, and I think that's how the stuff happens. Anyway, that's not a very maybe compelling pitch to people who are like skeptics to start with, but yeah. But I think that's why. But to take the question of like New Zealand, you know, how do you? What's the best advice for New Zealand? And I think that it's. I mean, I guess the first question is actually, what's the problem? It's great. And living here and, it's, and actually working here is actually, it's amazing. It's really relaxing and fantastic. And you get things done and people are nice. And, you know, very rarely you would see someone flipping you. I, mm. I haven't yeah, seen one that's in, a, good. in a while. But the, <laughs> so the Kiri culture is all about having a good uh, work-life balance and, and just enjoy a really nice lifestyle as well. Yeah. So I guess another way to pose the question is how do you use this as an, as an advantage? So base camp, like you mentioned before, is like a a super good example of a an amazing company but they don't like work 27 hour weeks you know sorry right <laughs> 27 hour. they don't work like 100 hour weeks they don't push their staff to do crazy hours um so kind of taking that more orientation towards work-life balance how how do you see other companies in maybe silicon valley or around america use that to an advantage rather than a disadvantage one thing that was very eye-opening to me about Silicon Valley was talking to you, uh, someone who was running design sprints in China and was talking about the startup culture in China. And he said, first of all, he's like, 
yeah, people might be interested in doing a design sprint, but it would be seen as like a side thing. Like you would do it on the weekend. Like they would run a design sprint on the weekend. Is there like they were that intense? And this is just, I don't know that much about the work environment in China. I should disclaimer this by saying this is just a, a guy I was talking to, you know, about design sprints. So, but just his take, right? Cause so here's, and it, and it does connect to something. So he's like, yeah, people would do it on the weekends, you know, and they, and they do that. They would like come to work on the weekend and do a design sprint. And then the other thing he said was, um, you know, if you think about in Silicon Valley where like maybe there are, you know, like for ride sharing, maybe there's like two or three companies competing, doing the same thing. He's like in China, if there's a, if there's a new thing, there's like 200 companies doing it. And so what, what struck me about that was that to, that to like another order of magnitude down, like Silicon Valley is like to what Silicon Valley is to China, like to like the rest of the United States is to Silicon Valley as like Silicon Valley is to China. There are lots of companies doing the same things or, or trying to get at the same problem and their intensity level, the intensity level and the ambition and the competitiveness in the Bay Area is very intense. And actually that, that ambition and that like the competitiveness, although it is behind a facade often of like California chill, like, hey dude, what's up? And people are very nice, but the competitiveness is actually to a degree that like, I'm very happy to not be living there anymore. As a few, it's just like, it kind of just gets to you like all the time that that's there. So, so I think that trying to be like, so looking there for the solution, it's interesting to look there and see if there are things to pick out, but it's not, I don't think the solution would be there. I think it's more interesting. You went to where I think is more of an interesting and point of inspiration, which is who's doing what we want to be doing and doing it successfully. And, you know, I think that Basecamp's a great example. And the biggest difference between Basecamp and other companies is one, they're focused, they know what their priorities are and they, they're really clear about it. And the whole way they operate is about being focused and making decisions that are of a manageable amount of size and don't go on too long. They also have deep, deep expertise in their target audience, right? So they've, they've been working on the same, for the same target audience for 20 years and the target audience is them. And the, the leaders of that company and I think the people who they've managed to attract over time are just like ridiculously world-class. So they're kind of tough to look at because they are such an exception in a way. But I think that fundamental is they're very focused and they've gotten in touch with their customers. They understand what their customers are doing really well. And that's something that's actually missing most of all over the place, including in Silicon Valley, is that most companies are trying to do so much. And that's what I think, well, that's their vulnerability, that they're doing so much, that they are so stressed out. If you can focus, if you can do few enough things, you can do them very quickly. You know, you can actually execute quickly, just like in a design sprint. If we're just doing one thing, we can do a lot in a week. And I think that if you if you're competing with a startup in in Silicon Valley, I mean, the first thing I would try to do is just do one thing really well when they're trying to do ten, and maybe their product is just one thing, but I guarantee you they're trying to scale it a lot or mark they're trying to do a lot and a lot fast. And you know, you never know if you're going to win at anything. You never know which product is actually even has a chance to be successful or which idea is good. But you can at least be more focused, and you can get really good at New Zealand chill, you know, you can like get really, really good at that. Like do that in the best, smartest way. Don't just do it by default or copy the way another culture works, but figure out what the best version of New Zealand chill is. And, and, mm. you know, maybe that's it. 
I don't know. That was kind and of I think that is the best way forward. It's also interesting to look at countries that have successful tech cultures that are that are very different. I mean, Switzerland is an interesting place, and they they have a, I think, in some ways, a strong tech culture. They have this tradition of craftsmanship and quality, and but very, you know. Uh, also, I, my impression: I lived there for a year and a half, working at Google there, and it's very true that the. Like you would sometimes be so aggravated, like, oh my God, we have another holiday, everybody. Come on, we got to, you know, we got to get this thing done. The team in California is just like, they're, come on, guys. But then, but then by the, you know, by the same token, like they were, you know, not so stressed. There's, I mean, there can be like a thoughtful approach to things. And it's, it's interesting to look at small countries and those bright spots. This is, I think, a good, a good sort of approach for anything is to try to find bright spots. Where has this worked really well and been true to the, the principle? Like if you look at products that are true to their principles and have succeeded well, that's exciting. And I think in this case, it's like, where are there places where people have been true to the principle of the culture and they, and, and done it in a really great way. And those, those companies and places are around and hopefully in some cases they haven't done it by just, burning out, you know, just pouring time at it. It's a little tricky. It's always tricky to know what makes for success because there's uh, there's a bit of luck in success. And then we look at the the companies who are successful and we, it's hard to know how much of it was luck. It's hard to know if we really want to be those people, you know? My, I always like to talk about, I, like, you know, like if you take somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, like what, like, do, would, who would really want to trade places with Mark Zuckerberg? Like, God, I wouldn't. That just sounds awful. Like, you know, I can't imagine he's, I don't know, is he that happy with it? You know, and maybe, maybe. But I think a lot of times the big successes don't actually yield joy for people. And that's another part. And I think that one thing that I try to keep in mind for my own efforts is this idea of having a small audience who you do something really high quality for, and you don't try to scale. You don't have to scale it to be something big and giant. And you do something really great for them, and and that's powerful. And there can be a business there. And Silicon Valley pushes for scale partly because of venture capital. It's venture capital makes money when it scales and goes big. But venture capital doesn't care about the long-term happiness of the founders. They don't care about all the companies who crash and burn. They don't care about all the employees who burn out. It, that doesn't matter to them. That that doesn't matter economically. So. You know, uh, it's also worth questioning the the values of success that we look at in in uh, the U.S. Cool. <clears throat> so New Zealand's also a very relationship-driven country. Um, so building a personal brand, reputation, and trust are extremely important for growth. Um, so going beyond Google Ventures, how did you build your career through a personal brand? Well, I guess maybe partly intentionally and partly by accident. I, I think that I, you know, the most calculated thing I did for personal brand was that when I got to Google Ventures, I decided to start wearing a, um, a button-up shirt because I, I realized that, you know, the, v, the people in VC, like a lot of times would wear, they would dress a little bit nicer than the engineers I was used to working with. It was like more of a t-shirt thing. And then I was like, I'm gonna go one better and wear a tie. And and so I, I got into the habit of wearing like a tie. And um, 
And then I was like, oh, this could be like my personal brand. Like I'm always wearing a shirt and a tie. And I also kind of felt better when I, when I dressed in that way. I well, felt I like a, a bit more put together. There are, yeah. It is working. I can imagine yeah. doing that. that yeah, gosh. right now, and this is a podcast, but you, got, you two can see me right now. And I actually just happen to be, I'm just, it's a good thing that this is not like a, like a, like a video call with smell because I <laughs> haven't even showered today. I don't, I don't look at all like I would in a photo for something. I've uh, been walking the dog all over. It's disgusting. But, but I did just, you know, start to think that like, this is, you know, this is kind of like it, I, I could see when I was thinking about facilitating a sprint or being the person coming in from the outside and wanting to work with people that if I came into the room and I had a tie on, even made me feel a little bit better. Like I was like more like in a character, you know, like, okay, now I'm, I, I'm the guy who's going to run this thing. And it made me feel when I went on stage to give a talk, like I was in character and I was, you know, like, um, and I don't mean in character, like it's different. It's still, had to be me because it's too much work for me to try to put on a fake front. But I think that the other part of branding that maybe happens like accidentally, and it's really hard, but it's what's hard is to try to talk like yourself. You know what I mean? Like to actually sound like, like yourself and have things come out as honestly as possible, but still be clear. And I'm still really working on that. Like I think I, I, at first when I started to do interviews or be on stage or I, I tried to really script what I said so that I would say the right things. And I still, if I give a talk, I still practice a lot. I want to try to hit things right. I think that's gives, makes for a better talk and is more respectful to the audience. But a lot of times I'm doing like a lot of when people, if to the extent that anybody ever hears me, if it's on a podcast like this, it's like, you know, I'm just talking and I haven't, I don't, I haven't prepared what I'm going to say. So I ramble a lot, which has got to be super annoying to people who are listening. But at the very least, it's like very, it's like me. You know, I mean, you're definitely hearing the same kind of conversation you'd have as if you had with me. Like, I'm really just saying what comes into my mind and talking and I'm not trying to, and it's very nice to not be working for Google anymore or Google Ventures anymore and not have to think with like this little, like, oh, what would, if somebody, like they tell you the first day you start working at Google, they're like, every email you send, every, you know, everything you say in public, imagine that was on the front page of the New York Times because everybody's obsessed with Google. And, and like, I took that seriously. And it's very hard to turn that switch off of like imagining how other people will perceive you and just trying to be honest, especially when you know, and I know right now talking to you guys, like, I don't really, I don't really have the answers to things. I don't really know, you know, and I'm, you know, it's like, um, so yeah. So, so trying to get to the point where you're comfortable talking, just being uncomfortable and like not knowing and like and so what I what I aspire to do is to ramble less but still be me and authentic and I think the people who are the the best who people love to listen to to talk that's what they do like they sound like themselves like Brene Brown I just watched a talk by Brene Brown for the first time and I was like oh my god I have a new quest for the rest of my life is to get as good as as uh, Brene Brown just to give one talk as well as she gives her stuff like she because she, she's so crisp but she's also so natural and and like oh man it's amazing so that's I think that's like that's yeah anyway that's what I'll go for but it's so hard it's so so hard so yeah mm. yeah I mean just a little bit on top of that it it's very easy because it's relationship based and you know your your own personal brand is so important here as well as an individual and you can get a coffee with anyone pretty much in New Zealand it's very easy people are very open yeah to it. Um, yeah but it's you know we, we don't want to sell either right you want to meet somebody yeah. and you want to have a relationship but y you also run a business and or you have a startup and it's 
it's like you have to work this fine balance between this is who I am, but also let's have a business relationship, but let's not have a transactional relationship. Yeah, right. totally, um, totally. It's tricky. Yeah, you know, for me, the things go best with personal brands, with finding people to collaborate with, with whatever, when I'm having fun. Like if I'm enjoying myself and then things go well and when I'm not, they don't. And I think it comes through when they're not. And, you know, I think that to the extent that I'm getting better at being myself, it's because I try, there's almost like this sensor, like, you know, like, um, like if you remember in Ghostbusters, they have like the sensor for like what, you know, and it's like, and it's kind of like that. And it's like, if it's, if it's beeping more, I'm like having fun and being more myself. And then when I am trying to be careful and cautious and like, you know, try to craft what I'm saying and try to like compose it before mm -hmm. I say it, then it's like, do, 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 do. And like, it's not me and it's not going to go as well. And all the ghosts come out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I just get like covered with ectoplasm, but, uh, <laughs> But the thing, like, I remember meeting, so actually Silicon Valley is pretty good at the, at the culture of like, oh, let's get together. And actually that might be generally, I don't know how much that's true just in the U.S. because I haven't lived that many places in the U.S. I think it's pretty true in Seattle too. But, um, but anyway, like people will totally get together and, and talk with, with you. But I also found that at a certain point, I got to the point where like, I don't have enough time to actually, especially when I was in California. Now it's pretty easy because there's not that much going on up here. So, um, but when in California, people would be like, oh, I'm visiting San Francisco. Could we get together? Could we, you know, and, and at a certain point I was like, gosh, I have to start saying no. And, and which sucks. Um, but I remember meeting Jonathan Courtney, who's now like my co-host on this podcast. And we've done a bunch of stuff together and. Um, and when I met We're him, I was, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And when I met him, I, I knew that I knew of him because he had written a post about design sprints and it was like, it was well-written and it also, it kind of, in hindsight, looking back, it kind of had this sort of like fun vibe to it. That is very much part of what he does. And then when I, I remember meeting him and, um, uh, Brittany, who also works at AJ and Smart, so a lot of their videos. Hi, Brittany. <laughs> I've written well, we're gonna post Hi, that to them you know because we're a part of the level up course with them oh well. yeah 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 so. yeah yeah and both of them were just like fun like it was it stood in such contrast to a lot of meetings where I or even conversations over email where you know you know the other person has an angle like especially w when I was working in VC it's like I know that like there's a lot of people would like to get an investment like I don't have anything to do with that part of it. Like, it's just like the beginning, like I get a lot of these emails and I'm just like, ugh, like my stomach, I'm just like, I hate to disappoint this person. It's probably like a very nice person. Or like a lot of times there's just this sort of like phony constructed facade in a communication. And I know they're trying their best, you know, cause I, I've sent a lot of emails like that. I've sent emails to people where I'm stressed out and I'm like, oh, I really hope they'll, and I'm trying, so I work so hard on the email and it's just like, I, you know, I just could maybe come to the point and say, Hey, so, oh, blah, sorry. I have to ask for something super embarrassing. Here it is. <laughs> and just say it. But like, instead I'm like, so sir, like, I was wondering if, you know, it's just like, it's just, you know, it's hard. It's hard to get that right. But I think they were an example of folks who were obviously having fun and were very straight up about like, yeah, it'd be really cool to like, you know, do to collaborate in some way it would be really valuable to us like they just sort of like said it and the combination of fun and them feeling like themselves and you know it like kind of just being honest about what 
they were what they were after was so helpful and refreshing and i think that you know that's kind of what i aspire to do to be like them to just be like straightforward and when i ask something to just say god i have i had to send an email like that today to a friend who i haven't talked to in a while and he's kind of a big deal designer he's like much better designer than me and I was always a bit intimidated talking to him and I had to ask him for a favor and I was like dude that's an annoying favor a businessy favor guy thing gotta ask you you know and I don't know if I did it right but um <laughs> what was my point I don't know anyway it's hard it's hard so yeah. you're saying we should make it fun so I'm just make coming into a meeting make it I'll be fun. like here's cupcakes you know <laughs> smash it at each other we're having fun now can you give well, you know what funding? you know what I mean by fun that's <laughs> no, a good, you know, make a good know, point know, you make, well you make a good point I should be more clear because I should be more clear with myself. I think it's when you can express what you enjoy about what you're doing and tap into what you care about that that makes people, people want to be around people who are enjoying what they're doing more than they want to be around people who are serious, you know? And that's, I think that's just the way it is. People like to have a good time and it doesn't have to be funny and it doesn't have to be um like overtly like like you know um <laughs> fun. yeah yeah fun i guess if for lack of a better word because i can't seem to think of a <laughs> uh, um uh, what's the word for a word that's that's like another meaning for the same word synonym, synonym. A synonym, synonym yeah. i can't think of a synonym for fun anyway but yeah, it's true it's, it's like, true when you have a conversation yeah. with somebody who's excited about what they do it yeah. makes me excited and motivated totally. by my own stuff so totally yeah, yeah. and i'm like you. oh i want to spend more time with this person i want to help this person with what they're doing you know i want to unlock more of that you know it's easy to say that if you are less introverted or it's easy to say that if you you know have are further along in your career i think that's one thing that's great about i'm like 41 years old and i'm much better at this than i was when i was 31 years old or 21 years old like you just you care less when you get older i think and that's that helps so a lot of the stuff's easy to say and hard to do but when i do think that if you're going to meet with somebody and you have an agenda that it could be so refreshing to just tell them like as quickly as you can, like, Hey, like, God, I'm really appreciative of you making the time. I, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm hoping to get. And, you know, um, and like, here it is, you know? And, and, and I think that that's, I don't know. I, I, I think a lot of people like to help and, and they would appreciate that. And, um, and you know, if they don't, then you save everybody time. Like if you, if you, if you sort of let them know what you want right away, you, you save them time. But I also think there is truth to this thing. I've heard a lot of other people say, which is that if you can, if you can offer to help a person who you're, who you're asking, you want help from, uh, upfront that they get more amenable to, um, to, to helping you in, in turn. And that, I hate to, to say that because it's not an original thought by me, so I don't get any credit. And it also it casts a little bit of a bummer light on this sort of like sunshine and moonbeams that we're talking about. People do like it if you're like, hey, like, you know, uh, maybe I could sh like well, Jason Freed, we're talking about him, has a great post about this. He talks about how how he hates it when somebody asks if they can like pick his brain or just like have a, you know, let's have a coffee for 15 minutes because there's no such thing as a 15 minute coffee and there's like no two way value there. It's just like if you're in the standpoint of somebody who's asked to do that very frequently and, and people ask me for that more and more. So I feel like I kind of feel his pain a little bit. I have some empathy for him. It sucks. It's like it does suck because you're like, I can't that's going to take a huge chunk out of my day and there's like a crater around it and like you know I've written a lot of stuff or there's a lot of stuff up on the could you just like look at the stuff on the web and I often ask people like could I just just tell me your question on email maybe I can answer it for you um but when people 
offer to share something with you, it, it helps, you know, it helps you get there. It's like, here's a, here's an experience I've had with the thing I know you're interested in. And that's the last part. And then I'll stop rambling about this is that I get the most excited about helping people when they're into some geeky thing that only I'm into like the, the, like, you know, that's part of the thing. That's part of the thing that's so great about like wanting to talk to you guys, right? Like I, I, I have gotten asked to be on a lot of podcasts and I have to say no to a lot of them. And you guys could tell like right from the get go, like you're into design sprints. Like you have this like cool design, like logo and stuff. I just like got into it right away. And I was like, this Yay. could be fun to talk to you guys. Like I know I it'll so be cool. Privileged. Oh my God. I'm and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, like I think geeking out on the thing that you're into that, you know, the person is into And I have in turn, I have really been helped by this. Like I, there was a writer who I approached when writing sprint and I was like, look, here's the thing I love about what you do. It's like very few people do it in the way you write. Like, and I tried to like get really specific about it. It's like, I want to know like how to do that better. Could, would you be willing to give me any tips or like point me in any direction? And, and like, and then I also say like, if you don't have time, like no worries, I know you're super busy. Right. And, and he, he actually like looked at a first draft of like the, the first few pages of sprint and like wrote, he wrote edits on it. And he like, it taught me so much. And that little bit from him taught me like so much about writing and it was just super generous of him. And I suspect that the reason he was willing to do that, I mean, he's a, just a generous guy. It's Charles Duhigg who wrote the power of habit. He's like super, super great writer. Um, but I suspect that he would, you know, maybe appreciated the fact that I geeked out on some of the same things and I could recognize a specific thing. I wasn't just asking him like, Oh, Hey, how did you write like a super popular book? It was more like, I, like I recognize, I see this thing that you're doing. That's really special that just you do not everybody. And I, I would love to know more about that. And a lot of times people in, don't get asked a lot of questions about that thing. That's like right in their, you know, right. Super geeky detail. So if people ask me, if somebody asked me about like, why do you think like paper mate flare pens or why do you only use yellow post-its? I'm going to be like, let's talk because <laughs> I care about that. Passionately, you know? that <laughs> yeah. But if somebody's like, Oh, could you judge our design contest? I'm like, I don't care about design. There's a million <laughs> people who know more about design. Forget it. Like it's no, there's no point mm. anyway. That's fantastic. And we found that both, Show the books. By the way, we brought them. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. If, for those of you listening at home, <laughs> buy Sprint, you, you buy Make Time. Here we go. <laughs> um, we this is our next question. <laughs> um, so, both Design Sprint and Make Time, it's all about kind of removing the defaults of like where we kind yeah. of tend to do things. So, like excessive meetings, removing like the default apps that come with your, your phones, or just I guess like society defaults we tend to like go into. So outside of a design sprint where you kind of set this very specific structure to remove those defaults, how do you encourage people to, to keep removing those defaults in their daily lives? The hard part is seeing the defaults. And I think in a way, um, well, there's this story I remember somebody telling me about, and I think it's just sort of like a, it's like an illustration of something. I don't know if it's based on a real story. It's not. I'm building it up too much, but it's like you start work. Imagine you start working like on the first day you walk through the lobby and there's like a orange extension cord, like just lying on the floor going across the lobby. And the person who you ask the person who's showing you like, Oh, why is there an extension cord there? And the person's like, Oh, I, I don't know. I haven't really, I forgot that was there. And then like, 
by three days in, like you've forgotten it was there, you know? And now it's like, you're trying to show somebody in and they're like, oh, why is there an extension card? And you're like, oh God, I totally forgot. Like there's so many things like that where it's like at first you experience the pain and then very quickly you're like, you just get used to it, you know? And, and we, we just moved into um, our new place in Seattle and like there's, I mean, you guys can probably see on the video, there's like stuff in here. There's like this pile of crap behind me. It's just boxes and like, there's an empty box. There's an empty box that we unpacked, but the box is still there. There's like, there's piles of books. There's a poster that we bought when my wife and I went to New York, like two or three years ago and have been meaning to frame. Now it's just like squashed and crunched. And we still, we moved it and now it's sitting on top of the pile. There's a dictionary. I mean, I could go on and on, but I forgot that was there. Like it's been there for long enough that it's just, I don't even see it. I don't even, I come to my desk and I'm like, I don't even see that thing. So this is, this kind of piles of stuff are everywhere in our schedules and in the way we do email and then when we do talk on Slack or whatever, the stuff is just like there. And what's hard is to see it again, to see the orange extension cord again. It becomes very difficult. So I think you have to do an exercise around it. And I've just started to do um, a couple times, uh, Jay-Z, John Zaratsky and I have started to do some workshops on make time for, um, for individuals and for teams of people. And one of the ideas that I've been experimenting with in the team version is to have people do a, first of all, have them do like a exercise for make time called stack rank your life, which is just, I can explain it really quick. It's easy. You just make a list of all the projects in your life at work and also outside of work. And then you put them in order, just the top five. Like what's the number one most important project to you right now? You can change your mind anytime. And what are the four after that, you know, and make that list and keep that list somewhere, keep it on your phone or write it on paper, but circle the top one because you should be every chance you get, you should be figuring out how to focus on that top one. Very simple thing, right? I mean, that's very simple, but it's actually, it's interesting to watch a room full of, you know, 20 or 50 or 100 people do that because it's hard for people to make that decision. And people list out a lot of projects. You know, they can, people can fill a page with projects. So if you try this at home and you find that's the case, it's not just you, everybody has a hard time with that. So you figure out what the top project is in your life and then, the, the next part is to do an activity, and actually I use the lightning decision jam to throw AJ and Smart another bone here. This is their, uh, their, <laughs> their sprint <laughs> technique. Yeah, so it's, a, it's just a, a team activity to make a decision about something and to sort of rank things using a uh, you know, impact uh, versus effort scale. And have the, basically have people list, okay, everybody knows what the top project is for them. Now, just thinking in your own mind as an individual, what is it that at work, what stands in the way of the most important work? So if you know what your most important, and you can just take the project that's the most important to you at work, you know, maybe something else is number one in your life. Um, what's standing in the way of that? And then have everybody list what the obstacles are. And then, you know, you do the lightning decision, Jeff. So you start to do like kind of collect, like, okay, what are the obstacles we have identified? And then you start to sort of figure out which are the top ones. And then you sort of start to figure out, okay, how could we, you, you know, maybe you choose one that's most important and you say, well, how could we try to solve that? What are some experiments we could start to run right away to try to make that better? You know, one that comes up a lot is unclear priorities that, that teams don't actually have clear priorities. So they can't work on the most important thing because they're being pulled in a hundred directions at once. And 
what, well, if you want to make your priorities more clear, how do you do that? And you can think of experiments. Like right away, people will start to say things like, oh, well, we could have the, the leader of this group, you know, maybe it's our director or um, each week she could send out a, um, here's the top priority for the week. You know, that would be really clarifying if we did that. Or you know, people can think of a lot of different ideas, but you find one that has high impact and low effort and you say, let's try a one week experiment. And I think this actually, you need some structure around identifying the defaults and figuring out what to do with them because they get to be defaults because they're in, like they're invisible, they become invisible. And then they get, they're really sticky and it's easy to do the default thing. So we keep doing it. So you need a, you need a structure to see them again, to make them visible and you need a structure to figure out how to break them. Amazing, all right. We're getting close to, to the end of our uh, podcast, but um, we would like to ask you, from Design Sprint to Make Time, um, how did you make that shift of going from something that is more, because it does have very similar ideas and um, you know removing the defaults. What was your, your process kind of going from product and work related to, actually I can apply a lot of that in my personal life? Yeah, it was kind of a, there, there was sort of, a moment, I guess, where John, uh, Jay-Z and I were like, oh, you know, maybe this could be sort of a, another, another thing that would be useful to people. Uh, maybe it could be another book, you know, or maybe it could be another blog. Um, but the truth is that both of us, even before we met, were really into this topic and had done a bunch of things and tried a bunch of things, like weird, like weird things, like to the extent where John, my co-author, was like, He's like designed and built two apps for just personal to-do list apps over the years. Like that's really weird, you know? Um, so like we, like he's weirdly into it. And so am I, I had done really strange things like like using a spreadsheet to track, you know, like my energy and like the what caffeine I had and what did I eat for lunch and like um, for, uh, you know, like I had all these things set up with like a calendar notification and like a Google form and it's just weird. It's just like uh, from the outside, I'm like a creepy thing to do. <laughs> so we were into it already and I think already doing weird stuff like like me to, trying to delete the, the, you know, the email app off of my phone and stuff like that. But it's... Um, I think it comes from us both feeling like we were not doing what we like, not kind of living day-to-day -day life the way we wanted to a lot of the time. And we just, we just always felt that friction. And I think part of the way that you become a designer is that you are like, you see the gap between the way things are and the way they could be. And I think that that's part of this is like, I see the gap between the way time is spent and the way it could be. And then because of the design sprint, we had the chance to sort of control people's time and we could, we could change all these things. We could change all the variables. Whereas it's very hard to do that for yourself. Actually, it's very hard to like boss yourself around to the extent that you can force yourself to focus. You know, I try to do that every day now because I'm self-employed and like, it's really hard to actually make yourself focus. But if you're facilitating a sprint, you could do it because you know, they're, they're, they're hiring you or you're coming in as an outsider. And that was, the, that was the unique opportunity was that you'd start to see like, oh, all these things that we want for ourselves, they happen in the sprint or we can make them happen. Um, and, and so now maybe is there any way to kind of take some of those lessons back and then apply them to ourselves? And I think we were, I think we did get like arrogant about how 
easy it would be to write another book and to make a, a system that people could pick up and use because it had turned out that the design sprint was a thing that people could pick up and use from a book. And I think that make time is, is not as, I was, I was talking to a friend recently who said, you know, it's like the difference between medicine and vitamins, like medicine, like if you have pain and you need medicine, like right away and vitamins, like it might make you stronger, but maybe people don't feel as acute of pain. And I think a lot of people don't feel the pain of, I think a lot of us are, are distracted and sort of vaguely want more attention, but it's not pain at work the same way that the design sprint addresses the pain at work. And that's probably the part that we're still figuring out. How do you help this be something that people get what it's, what it's for? They get the value of it and they can actually start doing it. And I think that with a design sprint, what has filled the gap between the book and people doing it has often been agencies. And it's been, uh, you know, or it's been that person inside the company who gets excited about it. And they're like, I'm going to champion this and figure out a way to make it work here. Uh, or it's, uh, you know, uh, extra extra posts or videos that people post about how to do it. And for make time, we have to figure that out. What's the, how do we help people go beyond, you know, just picking up the book and doing it and make it so they understand that it's, uh, it's as good as medicine and, um, and make it something that actually will, will work for them. And so we're still in the, I think in the process of figuring that out. So cool. And can you share what the next stage of your life is going to be oh. <laughs> big question. Yeah. What are you planning on doing? So you mentioned um, the make time workshops. I'm going to get dinner uh, after the call. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am, you know, gosh, I've been talking about this so much. I actually worked on it today, so I guess I'm allowed to talk about it. I'm trying to write a science fiction book, but I feel like I've just been talking about writing it for a long time and not actually doing it. This has been a weird year for me. We Obviously, we moved. I've been talking about that a bit. We adopted a puppy, which is a huge mistake. I urge anyone who's thinking about adopting a puppy to not do it. I mean, they're they're adorable, and I love them and everything, but if you, if you work from home, I've just – it can – yeah, it can take up your entire life. Yeah. We, so we there's you. there's that. I adopted uh, one literally four months after I started working from home. Oh, how man. did that go? Well, how'd that uh, go? It's I mean. good now, but uh, yeah, it was tough at the beginning. Like I also, I felt so bad. Like if I had to leave the house for a little bit and you totally. know, it was just, it was literally it, like a kid. Um, I thought, yes. oh, come on, I have kids. It's fine. Yes. Nope. Yes. <laughs> yes. Same here. I'm like, oh, we have kids. I'm sure a dog will be simpler than a kid. We've already no. done it with kids exactly. and it's, it's actually worse a bit because you're like, I, the investment here is not a full grown human at the end. It's a, still a dog. It's <laughs> I still, I have to pick up every poop for its whole life. Like there's just no, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Mm. And so you just have to, I mean, you just have to like, it's a great for me quite a difficult lesson in humility. And I don't mean humility. Like I think a lot of times people throw around the word humility. They're like, oh, I'm humbled. These people say they're humbled by things that they're really like honored. You know, they're really just like bragging about something. No, the dog makes you, takes you down a few notches. I think it took me down quite a few notches. And I definitely, if I thought I had my act together, oh, look at me writing a book about how to organize your day and organize your time. And then I just feel like, like God was like, why don't you see how well that works with a puppy <laughs> asshole? And no like, it's just, it's yeah, right. No, cause I didn't know. And it's, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. 
and and we had you know we had some illnesses in the family and like it's just so interesting just when you think you have it all figured out you know uh it has been quite a quite a year of me having to just like reset and reset and keep trying to refigure it out and i haven't yet i think after the move now that you know, kids are back in school, puppies maybe a little more chill, maybe things are about to, maybe there's a, a phase where I do write the sci-fi book and I do the other thing that I feel is this, actually, like in a way, make time has uh, just been, a, it was a big effort for for a couple of years, but now I feel like I, I wanna get back more to sprints and I want to, you know, make the workshops that I give on sprints, I wanna make those better. I wanna figure out are there more things I can do because I still really believe in that process and get a lot of excitement from it. But, you know, it actually goes to show, one of the things I've been thinking about, hopefully I've learned this year, is that when you are lucky enough to have a day when you can focus, a time, even a, you know, like today was the first day in so long I felt like I had time and I had energy. My God, you gotta take advantage of it. You know, you can't fritter it away and cause it, it could, because it could be gone. And, um, and, you know, health or puppies or anything that comes along from the, things can come from the outside. I mean, we chose to get the puppies, our own fault, but things can come from the outside and blow it all up. And, uh, and so you just got to savor those moments to, even to do work and, and be, make sure that you, I don't assume that it's always going to be easy because uh, it won't be. Uh, fantastic. All right. So we're at the end of our podcast. So we're going to ask um, our similar question that we ask everybody. And and that is, uh, who would you like to live for a day and why? Okay. I thought about this in advance. You guys sent me the questions and I thought about it, the, which is good because my first, my first answer was actually Donald Trump because, and I know this people, a lot of people don't like him and, uh, and I, I get it. Uh, but you got to admit, it would be fascinating. It would be fascinating to experience the world through his eye, eyeballs for a day. I mean, I, I can't imagine anything that would really honestly truly be more mind-blowing than that. That would be really something. Not only being the president of the United States, but being him. I mean, that's just, wow. That would be, I think that would be the, that would be like, if I imagine flipping through channels, it's like a being John Malkovich, like, like cable TV and I'm like flipping through. I think most people, they might not admit it, but they would stop on the Donald Trump channel and they would probably watch it, you know? So I have to admit that that's, I don't feel, I'm not proud of that, but that was my first thought. But then <laughs> when I thought about it, it a bit more and I thought about, yeah, I thought about what I would want to say, you know, when it was being recorded, I thought, oh, well, Wes Anderson, I think Wes Anderson would be fun. It would be fun to, I would like to see the world the way he sees it. Like to, you know, mm. like, like uh, that's, he's the creator of things that, impress me the most and the one that I'm the most like thrilled by. Like, I feel like some of the highlights of my life are like watching and rewatching like Grand Budapest Hotel. And it would be fascinating for me to just see like what, mm. and I've, I've listened to interview with him and it doesn't really, I don't really feel like I'm getting it from the interview, you know, but, but maybe like to just look through his, through his eyes, mm. maybe that'd be cool. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the, that's, that's the answer. That's, That's awesome. <laughs> both answers are awesome. A combination <laughs> of both would yeah. be great. Um, and before we before we start checking off, where can people find more about you? Oh well, I, gosh, I've I've talked for so long. I doubt anyone will want to find out more. But you can go to jakenap.com, and uh, there I have a newsletter. Yeah, so and I God, I need to write another episode issue of the newsletter, and uh, and then I have the uh, the podcast. Uh, Jake and Jonathan uh, is the 
name of the podcast. We just changed the name from Product Breakfast Club to Jake and Jonathan. So, oh, nice. Congrats. Be, oh, yeah. Well, it's because we weren't really talking about products, to be honest. We we're just talking. <laughs> so it's it's really a lowering of expectations. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. If you want more, that's the place to look. Awesome, okay, wonderful. Jake. We'll put some uh, links put at the bottom. Um, cool, cool. Thank you so much for being here. We, we, I think we learned quite a lot, and um, love to hear your perspective. It's like we have a day in, you know, in the Jake Knapp life, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. And thank you so much for uh, for making the time to join us today. Thank you so much, Jake. All right. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for being so patient and letting me finish all my incomplete sentences. You guys are great. <laughs>